0: Talking about death and grief is not easy, and it's especially challenging to talk with children about them. Given social conventions, we tend to speak about these two heavy topics euphemistically or indirectly, if at all. Turns out that for many reasons, not talking directly about death and grief is not such a great idea. One reason is that as painful as they are, death and grief are inevitable parts of life, and no one can avoid them. An Old Tale features a character who shows up as Death personified by a grim reaper-like character in the story saying, he will spare the protagonist's loved one if the protagonist can find a village that wasn't impacted by Death. Spoiler alert, no village was not impacted by Death. So the big questions are these, how can we best deal with Death and Grief? And how can we deal with them? if we need to communicate these giant realities with children. Fortunately, I know just the person to ask these and many other relevant questions, and that would be my new friend, Dr. Corey Lee. Corey is the author of a superb children's book on grief called, What Does Grief Feel Like? Corey has a long list of credentials, including professor, child life specialist, and thanatologist. What's a thanatologist, you might ask? It's a person who has studied the many aspects surrounding death and dying. Paradoxically, knowing death well can make a person far more alive. And you will hear this in the podcast that Corey is a vital, passionate, and supremely insightful person from whom I learned a ton. And I'm confident you will too. So listen in as Corey and I talk about grief and children. Dr. Corey Lee, who has asked me to call her Corey, welcome to Super Psyched.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm delighted. And the idea of writing a storybook for children to help them understand their grief process is one of the most brilliant things I've come across in some time. Before we even get into the book itself, let's just hear a little bit about you. You're a thanatologist. You have your doctorate in psychology from CIS. You've done really cool things. If you could just give us a little bit of your background.
1: I have a lot of hats that I wear. I do a lot of things and they all intersect in the area of thanatology, which we will certainly talk about in a few minutes, I'm sure. So I actually started my career as a child life specialist. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with that career, we work in hospital settings with children and families providing psychosocial support, preparation, medical play, and really helping children understand what's happening to their bodies using child development. So child life specialists are really trained at the intersection of child development and the impact that stress, hospitalization, and trauma can have on that child's development. I started working in pediatric ICU settings and very, very quickly was inundated with just a really overwhelming amount of death and grief. I was 22 years old, working as a bright, bushy-eyed childbirth specialist, and the first month I worked, I had around five children die every week that I was working in that ICU, and it was needless to say very overwhelming in some ways, and in other ways, it made me very curious about where my limitations were as a life specialist. So that propelled me to go back to school and obtain my first master's in thanatology, which is the study of death, dying, grief, and bereavement. So it was that degree and that experience that helped me really deepen both my theoretical and academic understanding of what happens at the end of life, particularly with children, but also how to support siblings, parents, and the child themselves who is dying I transitioned into pediatric hospice and palliative care and clinically have pretty much spent the rest of my career in that space, working with bereaved parents, bereaved siblings, and children who have a life-limiting condition. After I worked in that space for a few years, I went back to school and obtained my doctorate in transpersonal psychology, where I dove even deeper into the area of pediatric hospice and bereaved parents and the lived experience of being a bereaved parent. And after that point, I started doing some academic work and found myself in these academic roles. So I could go on and on, but that's a little bit of where I came from and what I do.
0: And as I'm listening to you, I felt and thought multiple things, including how grateful I am that you have really gone into this lane and are using your wisdom, your innate gifts to help people, to kind of shepherd or midwife people through this most difficult time known as grief that most of us are actually fairly maladroit at dealing with because it's hard. It really runs counter to kind of how we believe we want to live. And I wonder, one of the questions that I kind of imagine you get asked a lot at cocktail parties when you say, hey, I'm a thanatologist and here's what it means. (laughs) They must ask you, aren't you burnt out? And I'm guessing you're not, I'm looking at you, you look quite vital and you seem to have a great smile. And in spite of the amount of death that you've kind of invited into your life quite intentionally so you could help people through it, I'm guessing it's not draining in the way that people might imagine, or maybe it is. Why don't you just share with me what that's like for you?
1: Yeah, I had to laugh a little bit about like the cocktail hour conversation because I'm also a conversation stopper. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you do
0: for a living? I'm a thanatologist. <laughs> it's like, okay.
1: <laughs> it run across the room. <laughs> right. But the other thing that I hear almost equal to aren't you burnt out is, oh, that must be so hard. And it certainly is hard. But there is also an aspect to what drew me to this work that also feels a little transpersonal. I knew from a very young age, maybe seven, eight years old, that I wanted to work with hospitalized children. Objectively, there was no rationale for that. I wasn't a hospitalized child. I didn't know hospitalized children. I wasn't surrounded by death and grief. Maybe we could call it a calling. I'm not really sure. But I've definitely been pulled to the work. And I think that ability to recognize both the pull towards the work is something beyond myself. But there certainly were times of my career that I was burnt out and that I absolutely experienced vicarious traumatization in a hospital setting, working day in and day out with so many families. And it was only over time and really doing the self work going back to school. And I paused my clinical work for quite some time. And I just really focused on my academics and the theoretical perspectives that were helping me understand what did I just experience? What did the families that I work with just experience? And how can I use this understanding to better inform the way that I sit with families how I carry their grief, how I metabolize these experiences, and how I can wake up every day and do it over and over again. So I feel like I have come to a point in my career that it's more balanced, but it constantly is a oscillation of checking in and moving towards and away from that barometer of burnout, I should say.
0: Yeah, you and I both really thought deeply about vicarious trauma being saturated, being in perhaps a compassion fatigue mode that can really be the byproduct of doing really important and excellent work. And one of my favorite ideas that I've heard on my podcast from any of my interviewees comes from Michael Mead, who said, we are not homo sapiens, we are homo symbolicus. We are people who are chasing after meaning and i'm guessing yeah, and you put your hand to your heart when you hear this and i'm guessing that a big part of what fuels you to show up courageously and perhaps energetically appropriately for your clientele is that this is deeply meaningful to you.
1: Yes, it is deeply meaningful and the meaning is layered and the layers grow. When i started this journey, it certainly felt like a pull from outside of myself to work with this population And over the years, that pole ebbed and flowed and I would find myself wondering, can I do this forever? And what would it look like if I transitioned out of the hospital or into hospice? And talking a little bit about my book and how this relates to my experience over these years of working with families, I realized like there were just so many aspects that I wished I had a resource for. I wished I had a book. I wish I had an intervention that would help support the families. And so this book was rolling around in my head for so many years. And relating it back to my experience, it wasn't until I went through my own traumatic loss and in my grief as a mechanism of understanding and processing this book came through. And it came through on the one year anniversary of the loss that I experienced. So now my work has even more meaning. It has more layers to it. I certainly can never say that I know exactly what a bereaved parent is going through, but I can understand from my lived experience what grief is like for me and then connect that to my academic background, my clinical background and understanding at a deeper level what these bereaved families are experiencing.
0: And you kind of said something that's parenthetically similar to what a lot of people might say, well-intended, but not well-received by the bereaved, which is, I know exactly what you're going through, or he's in a better place, or time heals all wounds, or some type of pablum. And using yourself as an instrument and really, really tapping in to your feelings and what you were longing for and what you were needing As I was reading this childhood story, children's book, I mean, any adult would relate to what you're describing. You just happen to be describing them so that they are developmentally appropriate for children. But this would be brand spanking new. Some things that you wrote about, even like you may feel this one day and you may feel that next day. And they may seem like a contradiction. You even have a note in the back to parents of how to talk about the so-called D word about death and all of these things that you know that. Everyone needs to know so that we can deal with this crucial part of life. And last but not least, I'm just kind of thinking about the way we handle death in the United States. It's so covert and carried away in these kind of dark, icky looking places rather than really out in public. Like if you go to India, you see that people are having public cremations and it just kind of goes into the circle of life. It's almost as if we have stigmatized death to such a level, and stigmatized the people who are dealing with death, further making them feel less connected. You're nodding. There's so many facets to this problem and you are helping address it right on the front line.
1: You said that wonderfully. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Our culture certainly does have, and I'll say this nicely, a bit of a challenge (laughs) with saying deaths. And even if you do like a brief search of obituaries, very often does it say so-and-so died. It'll say they passed on, they've passed away, they've left us, they've gone to heaven. So even in our societal vernacular, euphemisms are used so often. And for a child, particularly a pre operational child. So, this book was written specifically for children under the age of eight, but also the adults that have read it. And I've had some pre readers have said, I learned something. This really helped me in my grief. But the book is really designed to help demystify how to talk with children, not just about death, but about grief. If we talk about death 4% of the time with children, Maybe we talk about grief 1%, 0.1%. It's left out of the children's literature. It's left out of a lot of conversations that happen after a conversation about death. So that's another reason that I wrote this book as at the time that I was writing it, there were no books specifically about grief what it feels like, how it's expressed and felt, and what it looks like in behaviors, how to identify a grieving child, basic information for parents and caregivers on how do you have these conversations, activities to do with a child. It really is the culmination of my lived experience, my clinical experience. I'm very proud of it.
0: You should be. And it's one of those books that when you read it, There's no like, oh, but Corey, you forgot about this, that, or the other thing. It was so complete. And I'm hoping you're feeling that way too. One of the big ideas around writing a book is a book is never finished, only abandoned. And oftentimes when you reread it, you think oh, crap, I should have put something else in. But I didn't have that experience whatsoever when I read it. I was like, this is really, this is kind of everything.
1: I appreciate that. We're our worst critics, right? So when I'm reading it, I do read it with so much pride and I really love it. And I'm like, oh, I really wish that I would have dot, dot, dot. But what I always come back to this is a starting point. There is no book, particularly psychotherapeutic books like my book is, there is no book that is entirely comprehensive. I did the best that I could to help any reader whether you come from a different religious background or cultural belief system, whatever kind of family structure you come from, I really did try to take a quite complicated process and distill it to the lived experience of a child.
0: That's exactly how it felt when I was reading it. So the intent was connected to the impact. That is fantastic. And you spoke about euphemisms. And I remember growing up, I think an elder in my own community said, when describing someone who had died, that they went to sleep, or even the idea of putting to sleep, convinced that on some level, deep in the recesses of my psyche, That part of my sleep disorders that I've experienced in this lifetime have been connected to this idea of like when we close our sleep at the end of the day, we might die. And maybe think twice about going to sleep. There are other words that people use. They left us, other euphemisms. If you think about it, left us, hmm, might that even make leaving for college harder or going away? It could almost incur agoraphobia. So, just by using these well intended euphemisms, may have unintended consequences. And I'm wondering, What are some things that you know, based on your experience as a thanatologist and someone who has really gone deep into this subject lived, what are some things that people can do to better attend to people who are grieving, especially children?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Talking a little bit about the euphemism part, it really is one of the most important aspects when having a conversation with a child. If your listeners can walk away with one tangible to do or one tangible thing that they can take away when talking with children, it is to use the D words death, die, dead to help explain what that means in concrete terms. And the reason that we recommend that, and by we, I mean child development experts and people that understand what is happening cognitively in the brain of a preoperational child is they haven't yet developed the capacity to understand the abstractness. So when you say something like, we lost your sister to wow. that three-year-old, I worked with a family where this happened, we lost your sister. So they found this three-year-old looking for something in the house, feverishly wow. under tables, in the backyard. And when they asked, they said, what are you looking for? He said, well, well, baby, baby sister, baby sister. It's
0: heartbreaking to hear.
1: And I have so many stories of this and families and parents and adults do this from a place of very well-meaning and wanting to say the right thing and wanting to protect their child. And I certainly don't want to take that away from any parent that is trying to protect their child from the sadness of the world and the hurt of the world. But the reality is that in the mind of a pre-operational child, exactly how you said you developed maybe a fear of sleep, it's very common. I think of another eight-year-old that I worked with who cognitively was more around six years old, who became distraught when his grandmother died. And the family explained that the angels have come to take grandma. So he became very fearful that the angels had come to take him too. So using those very concrete words, using grandma died, her body stopped working forever is a good place to start.
0: I imagine you get some resistance at times when you share this.
1: You know, resistance... I feel like a lot of times when families are hesitant or worried, it comes from a place of fear. They're afraid that they're going to scare their child. They're afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing. And when I explain it, kind of just like I explained to you, it makes sense to them. And we start with something I call the dosing method, which is you provide a little bit of information and see what the child does with it. So children do not need to know all of the details all at once. They need to know a little bit information to help them understand what is happening. You give that little bit of information and see what they do with it. I think about a conversation I had with a mother whose infant son died and their living child was about four years old when it happened. And we had had multiple conversations of how do we tell her? What words do we use? How much information do we have? And we settled on that one phrase. Baby brother died. His body stopped working forever. He doesn't eat anymore. He doesn't sleep anymore. He doesn't play anymore. And she took that in and she looked at mom and she said, okay, can I go have ice cream now? And that is a very developmentally appropriate reaction A few hours later, she came back and asked again. A few days later, she asked more details. And so it's helping the families, parents, primary caregivers have the tools to be able to have these conversations in that dosing method.
0: I love that idea because it's not a one and done conversation for a child. It's a series, I'm guessing, of touch points around this conversation. We as adults, we like to close a deal. (laughs) It's like will you marry me? Yes or no? Are we buying this thing? Yes or no? And with a child, it takes some time to process. And it even takes me as a grown up a lot of time to process death. My brain goes to all kinds of places when someone dies and I see it through different lenses. And that's what grief is. It's just a multiplicity of experiences in one phenomenon known as grief. And I am so grateful that you have figured that out. I'm wondering if you could speak more to what's a little bit of information. Can you give me some other samples of what would be considered useful for a child to hear when the news has gone really bad that and somebody that they care about died? And what do we look for after giving it to the child? What can a parent or caregiver say and look for?
1: Yeah, really good questions. So I always go back to child development and understanding, well, how old is the child? four-year-old versus a seven-year-old versus an 11-year-old, that dosing of information is going to be different. So that's the first step is to just understand developmentally where are they at I like to think about our information load as cups and adults have pretty big cups. We can get a lot of information at one time, even if we have to digest it and metabolize it a little bit. A child's cup is much smaller before they've overflowed and they just, they can't take any more information. And you can tell when a child is at that point, just like with the example that I gave you where the child looked at us and said, okay, can I have ice cream? Maybe they'll just, go play. Maybe they'll look at you and it'll be like, oh, well, they didn't say anything. They didn't ask any questions. And so you want to be able to observe their behaviors. And play is the way, the primary way that children process, metabolize, and understand new information. As adults, that happens to us primarily in our thinking, through our cognitions. For children, that happens through their play. So after these conversations, parents might notice themes emerging in play, themes of explicit death. I have had children after these conversations want to play burial, funeral, death. I've had them want to play out scenes of characters dying or people dying more, or I should say less explicit themes of play, like losing something playing lost and found you lost something you found something in the work that I do I have a sand tray and oftentimes when children are processing death or grief they will bury something and then find it rebury it and find it again themes of loss and finding I um, explicit themes of death you may notice behaviorally that your child or the child that you're working with has, less bandwidth. So we kind of go back to that cup where they're having meltdowns, maybe tantrums. They're unable to regulate their emotions like they used to be able to. And so there's a very normal process that happens when any big stressor happens with a child where they can temporarily regress a little bit. It's very normal. It can be scary for a parent particularly if they are used to their child at a baseline being just a very easygoing kid and all of a sudden now they are having meltdowns or they're yelling or they're throwing things or even hitting people. And it seems very outside of the norm. And oftentimes this is one of the areas that parents sometimes overlook because as adults we tend to place our experiences onto children. So when we think about grief, we think of people being sad and people crying primarily. Yes, there is sadness and yes, children do cry, but that isn't always the primary way that children will grieve. It is mostly through their behaviors. And in my book, when we talk about the different ways that grief is felt in the body you can start to recognize how your child is holding that grief.
0: Now, I'm taken with what you were talking about with the size of a child's cup relating to their cognitive ability to take in the magnitude of a thing. I'm having some recollection. I don't know if this is an implant or something. I've seen somewhere where some well-intended adult just overfilled my cup with grief. And one of the things that Frank Anderson, who is a psychiatrist, who's been on the podcast, he's internationally known as one of the best trauma experts. He describes trauma in one word as overwhelm. And death is obviously not the opportunity that anybody wants, but it's it's what is the opportunity at the moment. And handled well, it can actually improve the life of the bereaved. Handled badly, it can really, really set people back for years, if not for the rest of their lives. That being said, I'm going to ask you a really, really what's going to seem very obvious to you, but really maybe not be obvious to someone who's outside the field of thanatology. And that is, why is this so important to do well? And why is it also perhaps, for extra credit, important to not engage in this game with perfectionism, since probably we're not going to do it perfectly, but it's important that we do it well. Why is it so important that we do it well? What are the implications if we don't?
1: Yeah, really good questions. Oh, I'll try to be succinct.
0: (laughs) Take your time.
1: (laughs) About this. So I'll speak to the perfectionist part first and kind of segue into the importance of why we should have these conversations. So as adults, particularly as parents or as a clinician who's working with a child, if you have children in your life, you want to do the right thing. You want to say the right thing. You want to provide your child or the children that you're working with the best, with the most expansive experiences that they can have. And with topics like this, what can happen oftentimes is a child will energetically read a space. They will know if the adult talking with them is anxious, is afraid, is confused, is angry. And so, even though I know I just said previously that the words that we say matter, and they do, but also the way that we hold our energetic selves as we are having these conversations matters equally. Children, if you have a child, if you work with children, you know are very forgiving. Even if you say the quote unquote wrong thing, you can reframe it. And I've said this, even though I've been doing this for 18 years now, there are still families I work with or situations where I'll say something and then a few moments later say, you know, I think there's another way that I want to explain that. I think there's a better way. And then I'll just re-explain something or clarify Each one of these conversations, you can think about it, it's an opportunity. Mm. It's an opportunity to talk about a really hard subject. It's an opportunity to learn about your child. It's an opportunity to learn about yourself and to grieve together. Oftentimes, at least in this culture in the United States, we tend to overlook children They are a disenfranchised population. When you think about the five areas of disenfranchised grief, oftentimes I've heard parents, even counselors, therapists, I've heard every walk of life say something like, well, children are inherently resilient. They will get over it. They will forget. They won't remember. And what research and child development tells us is that's not really true. Resilience is a muscle and we're born with the ability to use that muscle, but we have to be taught how to use it. And so having these conversations with children is building that muscle. It's helping them create the tools and the language and the skills to develop their resilience. And oftentimes in conversations with adults, when they say something like, well, why, why should I have this conversation or why does it matter? When we look at the long-term results of bereavement studies and the impact that grief has on children, we can certainly see that certain experiences of death, particularly death of parents and death of siblings, does and it can, doesn't mean that it will, but it can have long lasting emotional impacts. Some children grow up to have an increased risk of depression, anxiety, panic disorders. It doesn't mean that it's prescripted, that if the death happens in a child's life, that they will experience these things. But in a really groundbreaking study from the University of Arizona, this was published many years ago, they found that the number one predictor of a child's grief, meaning was it adaptive grief or was it maladaptive grief, was the primary caregiver's response to grief how the primary caregiver was grieving, how they were able to hold conversations and hold space for their child and provide them with those opportunities. So it is really important to have these conversations, but it isn't just the conversations that are important. There is a whole scope. There's many layers to what makes a conversation like this helpful.
0: You know, my brain is just on fire as you're talking because you are just incurring so much thought And because this is such an important topic, both Nietzsche and Kelly Clarkson have said famously that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And I patently disagree with that idea because what doesn't kill us might make us actually quite a bit weaker if we attend to it poorly. It will make us stronger if we attend to it well, in general, is is my take. And I find myself thinking about, I told you about my beautiful cat, an orange tabby, who was a subject of conversation when my wife and I were discussing changing her willingness to possibly change her last name to mine. And she suggested that we change the name of the cat. But when that cat who became known as Max died in 2016, I was wrecked. And I started crying during the euthanizing process. And my son, my older son, Avon, came up to me and said, Daddy, you cried. And I said, yes, sweetie, I did. How was that for you? And he said, it was really kind of good. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why did you say that? And he said, well, it showed me that you can do that. And I'm wondering for the almost impossible equation to solve for, say, a parent is profoundly bereft and their children are also profoundly bereft, how can the parent attend to their grief while simultaneously attending to their child's?
1: Yeah, it is an impossible task in some ways. It is really profoundly hard to be parenting while grieving. And I always tell families, you will do the best that you can with what you have at the time that you have it. And there will be really bad days and there will be okay days. And there are resources in every community to support you through this. In a situation like the one that you described, I would certainly recommend that particular parent reach out to a children's bereavement center. Most states, I think South Dakota doesn't have one. I think there are two states that don't have one, but other than those two states, and I know South Dakota is one of them, there is a children's bereavement center, at least one in every state. And oftentimes these children's bereavement centers are free. You do not have to pay. They have concurrent parent groups and children groups at the same time. But if for whatever reason, accessibility, transportation, finances, you're not able to go there, a book like mine could be one of those ways that a family could grieve together. Oftentimes what happens when a loss occurs, when a death occurs, the family is grieving as a unit but that unit is operating as its own parts, right? So everyone is grieving alone together and that can be really isolating. One of the things that children say a lot in my work is how lonely they feel. I'm the only kid that has had a brother die. I'm the only kid that doesn't have a mom. When in reality, they're not the only kid. We know that 5.6 million children in this country are bereaved, either from a sibling loss, a parent loss, a primary caregiver. That number has grown exponentially since COVID. And so these are children in your classrooms, in your library, in your pediatrician office, in your grocery store. If you work with children, chances are you have had a child in your life experience a death. And so providing resources and opportunities for the family as a unit to grieve together is one of the most important things. And it will be messy. There are no stages. There is no linearness, especially to early raw grief in that first year, those first several years.
0: You know, as you're talking and as you're also speaking to the value of your book parenthetically, I find myself thinking that literally on every page, there are at least one or two or maybe even more hyperlinks that serve like as conversation starters, like every little aspect. They're very simple sentences. They're written clearly with the child in mind. But I'm also thinking about the very nature of grief incurs a regression intellectually and developmentally in all of us. Uh, We go to earlier states and no matter how grown up, no matter how educated we are in psychology, when this stuff happens to us, we need tools and your book serves as a tool. And I want to even propose that every page become a place for a discussion about like, yeah, how's this true for you or or not true for you? What are you in touch with here? Can you tell me a little bit about the book and some of the ways it's been useful, perhaps to the reader?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you picked up those inserted questions. That was a really important piece of the book. This book is written to be a psychotherapeutic book. And what Mm. that means is it isn't written to be given to a child for them to read on their own, at least the first time. It's meant to be a conversation starter and a therapeutic tool for the adult in that child's life to either, if it's a parent, grandparent, primary caregiver, to facilitate a conversation, and if it's a clinician, to also use it as an assessment tool to understand where is this child at in their ability to express and understand the emotional and physical components of their grief. And at the time that I had written this, as I had mentioned previously, I was actively grieving. And it was one of those experiences where when you're a quote-unquote expert in something, You put a lot of pressure on yourself. And I remember one day I was in my home and I was washing the walls, something I had never done before. And I was washing the molding on the bottom of the floor. I was just washing, washing, washing. And I stopped for a moment and I realized like, oh my goodness, this is how I'm expressing my grief. Up until that point, I couldn't cry. I couldn't express it emotionally. I was all in my head about it and as i was washing the walls i realized oh my goodness this is textbook and instrumental grieving response so kendoka writes about intuitive and instrumental grievers and genderedly one might imagine that female identified folks are more intuitive but it doesn't really work like that i am very much an instrumental griever i think through my feelings and i do through my feelings And then I realized through my experience, I really wish that I had somebody to just ask me really simple questions. And I let that percolate in my head a little while. And then at the year anniversary, I didn't plan it like this. It literally just poured out of me at the kitchen table. I wrote the manuscript and the questions embedded into it. And they were the questions both that clinically I would ask children that I worked with. So every question in this book is a question that I ask children, but they're also the same questions that I wish somebody would have asked me to help me identify and express my grief in that time.
0: Brilliant. And, you know, I'm working on my own children's book right now, as you know, and it's to really highlight the idea of inclusion as well as multiple intelligences and multiple strengths and really appreciating each of them for what they are. And interestingly, my father (laughs) came across it, who's often the source of great ideas said, you know what you should do at the back of the book is write some tips for the parent who might be reading it with the child. And lo and behold, you've done that and you do it so well. You talk about various ages that in really trying to help Parents understand that developmentally, how we address this is important. And I love that idea. I was wondering if you could share just some... And by the way, listener, buy this book. I don't care if you're buying it for an adult who's grieving or a child who's grieving or anyone in between. It's really, really the book we all need. What are some basic tips, though? If you were just asked, like, what are some of your greatest hits? What are some of your greatest tips for people who are in grief?
1: Yeah, particularly for children in grief. I will definitely put a plug back in there for the avoiding euphemisms and dosing those conversations. But when it comes to the grieving process, one of the things that's really important for adults to recognize and understand is that grief is a developmental process for children. When a death occurs in a child's life, they will revisit that death and their increasing understanding of that death at each developmental stage that they enter into and exit out of. So for example, if you have a child who's pre-operational, maybe they're four or five years old, and a death happens and you have those dosed conversations with developmentally appropriate information and they're processing it, when that child turns eight, and it's not like a magical thing where all of a sudden one day they wake up in their concrete operations, But generally, around the ages of seven, eight, and nine, a child enters into a very different way of cognitively understanding a world around them. They're able to grasp a little bit more abstract understanding. So the answers that satisfied a three-year-old may not satisfy that eight-year-old. They may ask more details. They may revisit it in new ways. If that person who died was a mother or a father, Mother's Day and Father's Day may take on a new meaning. When that child goes to their first school dance, when that child goes on to college or gets their first job, they will constantly be re-grieving. And the re-grieving is a process that will oftentimes take parents off kilter a little bit, like they'll be caught off guard I've worked with many families where the loss has happened years and years ago, and I'll get a referral or a call for all of a sudden, my child is dot, 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 regressed in behavior, acting out. And in my intake and in my understanding of what's happening in this child's world, usually, and it's not all the time, but oftentimes there is a new developmental stage that's been entered. There is a deepening of understanding of what it means that their loved one, will never be a part of their life in the way that they were before. And as these things are happening, right, as this child is entering into these new developmental stages, they're also developing their identity. So identity development actually starts in toddlerhood. It's really fascinating, the research that exists in this. So a child is developing their worldview, their assumptive stance. The world is a good place. The world is a bad place. The world is a safe place. The world is an unsafe place throughout their childhood. And mixed in with that is about the ages of seven, eight, nine. the ability to start to recognize, well, who am I? How am I the same? And how am I different from people around me? And so this re-grieving process takes place at these touch points along a child's life. So that can be, if there's one thing that adults know or remember from this conversation too, it's the developmental process that children will re-grieve throughout their life.
0: Not wonderful, but wonderful that you were able to articulate that so well. Kind of a, a cousin to what you're saying is a phenomenon that I've noticed, at least in myself and, and actually in the people I serve. And that is when grief shows up as a stimulus, it seems to almost echo other grief. Like, so if, let's say I lose a pet. It kind of goes into that chakra, for lack of a better term, that is the grief I'm caring for other things. It could be other deaths, could be other losses in my life. And suddenly they come to the fore. Is, is that, yeah, you're nodding.
1: Yeah, that 100% that happens often, particularly when we kind of loop back a little bit to prior conversation that we had about why is this important? Why should we talk to children about this? Unprocessed grief and grief that stems from a death that's also ambiguous, or there's miscommunication about that understanding, right? A child was told euphemisms or developed some magical thinking about that death. We haven't even talked about how often children feel guilt and feel like maybe they caused Mm. the death knocking. And that is one of the very common misconceptions that you can uncover through these kind of conversations that when Grief happens that is connected to a loss or a death that maybe there just hasn't been space for. Maybe there hasn't been an adult in that child's life to process with them, play with them, listen to them, talk with them. That death that's currently happening, the death of a pet a teacher that dies. That's happened very often where we have a child who experienced a loss in maybe preschool and then their elementary school teacher dies or a peer dies or somebody in the community dies. And the grief that they're experience on that current death propels them back to the grief experience that they had as a child. And because this is a child, they will not have the language that i just had to explain that to you so you will see the grief through their behaviors
0: beautifully articulated and you know i'm thinking of an adult in my life who lost a parent very young and then subsequently as an adult when another family die, member died in an important one just put this person in an unusual tailspin and i just feel so much love and compassion for this person for having gone through both of these losses and if I recall correctly, the person described to me that grief was not handled well at home. Well, one of the things that I've uncovered, certainly through my studies around grief and coming across Sheryl Sandberg's book that she co-wrote with Adam Grant called Option B, or Nodding. One of my favorite books about describing how to deal with grief for yourself and gr- how to deal with grief for people you love is the idea that it's really painful. It can be really painful if we talk around it or don't even address the issue. Like I might know that somebody in your life died and just talk about everything, but you know, how about those giants? And it can feel really awful to the bereaved. Like, wow, that person really want to talk about everything but that. And if you ask the person who is engaging the bereaved, it's of course well-intended. I don't. I just didn't want to make her sad or him sad. It's like, oh, believe me, we're already sad.
1: We're already sad. Yeah. So
0: that said, if you're comfortable going here, you mentioned yourself that you'd been through a massive bereavement process. And I was wondering if you're comfortable sharing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In this work, there is this interesting intersection of lived experience, clinical experience, you know, kind of balancing the personal grief with the grief of the folks that I work with. And so, yeah, my husband and I had recently found out that we were pregnant. And so overjoyed and excited and just I was starting a new position my first academic position moved to a whole new state in a whole new town didn't know anybody and very sadly we lost the baby the baby died at about 16 weeks and experiencing that kind of loss without a social support in a new state in a new town in a new part of the country Mere months before COVID. So the lockdown had its own interesting piece of my grief process. It really pulled the rug out from underneath me. And I mean that literally, like I, a puddle on the floor many times and thinking to myself, like, how can I, a thanatologist, a grief counselor, someone that works with pregnancy loss, how can I like be grieving like this? this doesn't seem right. It's too much. I felt like I have people that work with me and sometimes the very first thing that they say is like, am I grieving right? And then I was feeling that just complete lack of a ground beneath me. Even so much that, you know, in my work with children who are at the end of life, I do a lot of legacy building and memorial making and activities and creating tangible items. I couldn't remember any of it. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to remember my baby, but didn't know, like, do I write a letter? Like, do I do a handprint? What do I do? And so I was completely lost, completely isolated. And the whole experience was just so overwhelming. It put me a little bit in this state of crisis professionally as well, where I thought, oh my goodness, I have worked with bereaved families for years and years and years at this point. And now that I am quote unquote in their shoes, having experienced this kind of a profound loss, I questioned everything. was like, did I even say the right thing? Did I know what I was doing? Did I say the wrong thing? Was I insensitive? I just like, it was this almost like when you hear people have near death experiences and they're like life flashes before them it was a little bit like that where i just questioned everything you know moving through the grief process there were really bad days really bad weeks and months and eventually as i came up to this one year mark as i had mentioned and it was the covid lockdown so social distancing there was nowhere to go nowhere to no one to see groceries delivered to the door kind of covid i just felt this energy move through me and was like you know i remember i was sitting on the couch next to my husband and i said i have an idea i'll see you later and i went to my <laughs> i went to my office and i just drafted all of these jumbled thoughts and i set it there and then the next day i sat at the kitchen table and just poof the manuscript the book that you have read is pretty much word for word, the manuscript that poured out of me.
0: Oh, come on. Wow.
1: I think it's a once in a lifetime thing. Like I'm writing other books right now and it is not. It's much more challenging. So really, really felt in so many ways that my baby was channeling this through me, that his legacy and his memory and in the very, I think the first page or the first few pages, I have a copy here, so I'm looking at it. There's a dedication page. And on the top of that, my dedication is to Noah and Ruthie Liu, who are two babies that I worked with, and Maurice, the baby, our baby that we named Maurice. So in seeing his name in my book is maybe one of the only places that I will ever see his name. And so he was real. He was here. He mattered. And now he is forevermore part of this book and this journey.
0: I'm speechless here and just so taken aback and so blown away by this story and the totality of it. There's so many layers to this story, including the fact that here is a thanatologist who has gone through this and how it kind of calls to mind that, moment in William Hurts movie where he was a surgeon who dealt a lot with cancer. And when he went through his own cancer, it was a totally different thing than treating someone else's. And I wonder, and I just, and I love the fact that Maurice is in your book. After whom was he named? If I may ask.
1: My husband's grandfather.
0: I'm just taken by this as cliche as it's going to sound the bittersweetness of life as you're sharing this with me. Just this was not what you'd wanted for Maurice. And this is what you've got.
1: Yeah. And You know, that bittersweetness, I talk about this duality, right? That when you have experienced a profound loss, your world as you knew it will never be the same. There is no going back to before the loss. There's a rebuilding of life after. And a part of that rebuilding is the recognition and the realization that pain and sadness, joy and sorrow exist together and they will forevermore. And that kind of part of rediscovering oneself and wondering, like, what is this world that I'm a part of now that I've experienced this level of suffering, of pain? How do I move through it and move with it, not beyond it or past it, but use it and understand that it is now a part of me?
0: And. Before I get to my last question, how were you able to reinitiate professionally after having this loss, actually walking on those same grounds vicariously with others who were going through what you went through?
1: Yeah, I took about a year off because it was right around the same time that I wrote the manuscript. And I don't think this is a coincidence. So the manuscript was very internal, right? My grief was very internalized. It was explicit. It was expressed. It was externalized on the page. And almost a week, two weeks after that, I started getting inquiries. And I hadn't put on my website or on my psychology today, like not taking referrals. I honestly forgotten to. So it was very interesting, the serendipity that I, I wrote the manuscript. I sent it out to publishers. And almost concurrently to that, I started getting referrals for... I just experienced a stillbirth. Are you seeing anybody? I just had to terminate my pregnancy. Are you seeing anybody? I just had a miscarriage. So we're just, they found me and I felt ready to be able to engage clinically again. And I very slowly brought my practice back and now I'm kind of overbooked (laughs) and full.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you may be all the more so after this episode drops because your contact information will be on it. But I'm so grateful that you're here to be with people during this profoundly important moment in their lives. Is there anything I should have asked, but haven't yet before I ask my final question?
1: No, this this has been really, really wonderful.
0: I'm so glad. So Corey, you get my final magical question. If you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity, one insider skill that would dramatically improve the lives of people, what would that insider skill be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as perhaps society at large?
1: What first came to mind was the ability to sit with, make space for, give name to, engage with sorrow, suffering, pain. And it sounds counterproductive because you're like, how how in the world am I going to benefit from that? But in my work and in my experience, for the people that are able to do that and have been able to cultivate that space and go to those really scary places, they've been able to make space within themselves to enjoy and experience life even though they have also experienced pain and suffering and trauma. Likewise, the other skill, we all have it and we all have used it. We've all done this, but in our adulthood, we forget to play for the sake of playing an engagement, an experience that you do because it makes you feel good, because it's fun. When we can play as adults, and there's science on this, there's a whole institute of play, I believe it's Stanford, on adult play. When we can get into those states of flow and play and creativity, the world becomes a really meaningful place that we want to engage with.
0: Ori, I am... I knew this was going to be a great interview, and I knew that my friend Ben Greenberg would only marry the most incredible woman, but I can't thank you enough for deciding to dedicate this dash between your birth date and your death date to one of the most important things on earth and using your innate and painfully cultivated skills to walk with people through this inevitable part of life. That none of us wants to talk about, none of us wants to experience, but it's gonna happen at some point to us all. None of us is not touched by this. I am positive you're an incredible fanatologist, And I am so grateful that my listeners are the beneficiaries of your wisdom.
1: Thank you. I really can't thank you enough for opening your schedule and having this conversation with me. And thank you for all that you're doing and being able to connect But so many people around the world, I imagine your listeners are probably from very far away and how amazing that you can offer this space and be able to sit with these conversations and then share it with other people to help them. So I thank you.
0: Right on, my new friend. Well, may this be the beginning of something great and thank you. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it, or who might benefit from listening? Share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.